Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl, the first day of spring, March 20th, 2018. And I have a very special guest with me today for our Wise Girl chat. He is Dr. Rick Hansen. Hi, Rick. Hello, Francesca. <laughs> Uh, so great to have you with us. He's a psychologist, a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, a New York Times bestselling author. I know that one of my favorite books that he's done is Hardwiring Happiness, uh, available in 26 languages. Uh, that book, uh, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture are uh, many of the ones that he's written that you can find in bookstores and on your bookshelves as well as his latest book, which if I can hold it up right now, released this month, Resilient. He lives in San Rafael, California, and has two adult children, one of whom, Forrest, co-wrote Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. So who doesn't want that? Welcome, Rick. Thanks so much for being on Wise Girl. Thank you, Francesca. I want it too. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a good thing that it's um, practicable. Right. Um, let, let's start with that, because I think that, uh, you know, if you just want to introduce yourself to the audience and basically say a little bit about what makes the kind of work that you do special and special in a sense, unique and um, and special, <laughs> uh, but special and, and unique in the sense that you're actually trying to work with the way that the brain is wired in order to help us get these things that we say that we want more of, calm, strength, and happiness. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks. So I'm a psychologist, a practical methods-oriented person, and I work backwards from what do we need inside ourselves to deal with the hard things in life, to deal with everyday issues, ordinary stress, the job, the commute, the people we live with, raising children, as well as, you know, what do we draw on? What can we draw on to deal with really big things like serious illnesses or grinding poverty or oppression that's coming at us relentlessly every day in one kind or another. So what we draw upon inside ourselves uh, are psychological resources, mental resources, call them inner strengths. Things like patience, determination, self-confidence, secure attachment, executive functions, social intelligence, mindfulness, self-compassion, insight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, it's the like, it's the joke. Uh, so what's in your wallet? Well, what's in your mind as you go through life? The question then becomes, how do we get the good stuff inside ourselves? How do you grow? People say, I, I wish I had more happiness inside me. I wish I had more emotional balance inside me. I wish I wasn't so haunted by my own childhood. I wish I had more inner peace when I think about growing up or my life today. I wish I had that. Then the question becomes how to grow. And what's interesting for me as a psychologist and also someone who's been involved in human potential for almost 50 years, I started meditating in 1974. Um, what's striking to me is very often people recognize that it's good to have these psychological resources, these inner strengths of various kinds, but therapists, meditation teachers, coaches, human resources trainers, and many educators actually don't pay much attention to how to grow these in the first place. And that's what I've especially focused on because that takes us immediately into the brain and how the brain internalizes the experiences we're having so that we gain from them. To finish, you know, for me, it's actually been existentially really important. I take it back to my mid-teens when I realized that I was really unhappy. I didn't know squat about how to relate to other people. I knew how to use my intellect, but that was about it. I was a pretty miserable guy and I felt really stuck in my life. And there was kind of a light bulb moment for me where I just realized, wow, the most important thing to learn was how to learn. The most important thing to to, to grow was the ability to grow. It's like I wanted to gain these superpowers of happiness and determination and confidence around girls or other things. Those are like superpowers. Learning is the superpower of superpowers because it's the one we draw on to use the rest of them. And so at that point going forward, I just started looking for opportunities every day to grow a little bit, 
to learn a little more about other people, a little bit more about myself, get a little more skillful, get a little stronger, get a little more loving, get a little happier. And along the way, I've you know really focused on helping people and boiling it down for people to actually how to uh, gain these inner strengths of various kinds just in the flow of your ordinary day. Yeah, I think it's really valuable work. And I mean, one of the things that I, you know, sort of uh, equate it to or make it akin to is, um, for example, in, in a relationship, um, you know, they, they'll be like, well, you know, you shouldn't go to bed angry or you shouldn't fight or you should always, you know, be kind to your partner or whatever. But it never really addressed like, well, what are some of the things that you can do so that is more of the natural conduit that comes out of your essence and out of your body and out of your beingness uh, without having to have it be so uh, deliberate, if you will, that if you practice a certain set of tools that you outline in uh, not only resilient, but the program that it's based on, the 12 pillars of well-being that you offer as a online <clears throat> offering and course uh, for the course of the year, that if you have that, then it's again, you're teaching someone how to fish. You're not giving them a fish or telling them that they need to have a basket of fish. Yeah, that's exactly right. In kind of psychological language, right there, you were talking about moving from state to trait. States come and go. As any meditator knows, or really anybody who knows anything about mindfulness, experiences are impermanent. They're constantly changing and they don't net, and, and our beneficial experiences don't naturally leave useful traces behind. But our negative experiences, irritation, feeling hurt, feeling left out, resentment, anxiety, those negative experiences do leave lasting traces very quickly as physical changes in our brain, in neural structure or function. So the opportunity then, if a person does, for example, want to replace over time feeling inadequate with feeling worth, or if a person wants to replace uh, exasperation and anger as a kind of background in their mood, with well, more of a sense of contentment and inner peace, the way to do that is to have that experience and then help that state, that state of being, become hardwired into ourselves to develop greater trait inner peace, trait confidence, trait gratitude, and trait happiness. Well, a lot of us want the uh, cupcake, but we don't have to mix the batter. We don't want to have to mix the batter. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and, and I think that that's what you're saying is, you know, here's the recipe, go out and buy the ingredients, start using a little bit of elbow grease, you know, pour the stuff into the bowl and then, you know, do it every morning whatever analogy that you want to do, but keep doing it throughout the day, keep doing it so that you can have an infinite supply of cupcakes in this case, you know? No, and that's so, so effortful, right? You have to keep working. It's like, you're always pushing the, the rock up the hill, trying to generate another state of being, another moment of happiness. But over time, if you actually build up this unshakable core that I talk about, and um, you then enter the next moment, already with a sense of calm strength baked in you enter the next moment already with a sense of fullness enoughness contentment uh, satisfaction even if you're still dreaming big dreams even if you're still really ambitious and going for it and also you enter the next moment with other people feeling already liked enough already loved enough and already with a kind of um, unconditional capacity to have compassion for other people even the people who wrong you and that makes all the difference in the world. What's already inside you as you meet the next moment. And you know, Rick, what I think is what you're saying that it's so powerful and different traditions and methodologies speak of this sort of um, place, whether it's presence or whether it's groundedness or whether it's your true self or whatnot. And that when we're coming from that place, which is usually manifested in compassion or kindness or patience and love or, you know, those kinds of behaviors uh, that, that that's really already part of us, but that there is this way of, as you were saying, initially cultivating it with very specific, very particular 
tools that you outline in this book and in some of your other teachings, like, for example, linking, for example, which is um, something that nobody, I don't think, would come up with on their own as a way to start to change the way that they could have something become a trait. So, uh, you know, they might just say, oh, well, I'm very reactive and I don't want to be that way anymore, but they wouldn't understand what they might need to do to do it at a deep level that this gets at. So can you describe maybe, for example, something like linking, you know, yes. absorbing, marinating? I know you have all these different terms that you use, but the linking one in terms of the positive and the negative, I think is useful. Oh yeah, that's great. So <clears throat> we work backwards from what would be good to grow. And a lot of what's good to grow is toughness, is strength, determination, fortitude, uh, no bull, uh, a sense of healthy entitlement, uh, especially if you're a person who's been systematically mistreated or told in a variety of ways, uh, in a, through a variety of messages that your needs don't matter as much as other people or you're not as respectable somehow as other people. So these are, so when I, I want to be clear, while I think it's good to grow happiness inside and, and love inside, a lot of also what we need to grow inside are, uh, are various kinds of inner toughness. Okay, so then the question becomes, how do we actually do that? Especially, how do we deal with negative material? like feelings of sadness or inadequacy or uh, chronic anxiety or even the impact of trauma. And that's where the method of positive brain change that I summarize as linking comes in. To be clear, I did not invent it. This method is implicit in a lot of therapy and in common sense approaches to the mind, but you're really right. A lot of people don't normally think about do-it-yourself linking as they go through their day even though it's a fantastic technique and you can use it in a lot of ways. So to summarize how to use it quickly, if a person is, let's say, dealing with something negative, by which I mean something that feels painful and is often harmful as well, including in the ways that it stresses us, which wears down our physical health. And often it's harmful for others because it can stir up conflicts with other people or lead us to do things that are not very good for other people. All right, so let's say over here, you have some hurt feelings. And maybe the hurt feelings related to something that's happened today or recently. You were dismissed by your coworker or someone was snippy at you on your Facebook page or you maybe, and maybe that brings up old material like a memory of a previous relationship in which a partner betrayed you or walked out on you or really older material from say high school or junior high school. Uh, now we have that negative material, feeling hurt. What do we do with it? Well, for sure, we can accept it and witness it. We can just be with it mindfully, hopefully with compassion and so forth. We're not directly trying to change it. Sometimes it changes, but minimally we need to be able to be with it. After doing that, at some point, it's often useful to be more active in your own mind rather than receptively witnessing something, which is, of course, profoundly useful. But that said, it's not the only form of useful practice with our own minds or spiritual practice with our consciousness altogether. We need to engage wise effort as well, in which we help what's problematic and negative to reduce, and we also try to cultivate the good. Okay, so let's say we're now trying to directly address these hurt feelings. A very powerful way to do that, based on how the brain works, is to bring to awareness also, alongside the negative, something that's powerful and positive, and ideally is a matched antidote to the negative or a matched form of compensation for it. Uh, so for example, alongside old feelings of being, alongside feelings of being hurt, kind of pushed off to the side of awareness, a person could bring to mind, and I do this method myself quite routinely, bring to mind, let's say, feelings of being liked by other people, or feelings of being respected or included by other people. Or even if it's tough for you to bring in other people, bring up a strong sense of your own compassion or kindness, like how much you love your dog, or how much just thinking about your grandmother makes you happy. Uh, because love is love, whether it's flowing in or flowing out. In either case, now you've got a big, powerful experience of being included and valued and cared about 
off to the side of awareness are those feelings of hurt, rejection, inadequacy. And since neurons that fire together wire together, in the famous saying, by being aware of both of these at once, but keeping the positive bigger and more powerful, it will gradually associate to and ease and soothe and potentially eventually replace the negative material, like flowers crowding out weeds in the garden and eventually uprooting them. And any single time you do it is maybe half a minute. It sounds complicated, but the experience is really simple. You're aware of two things at once, but you can't get sucked into the negative. And if you do it with repetition, you truly can clear out the basement in your mind. I love that. And I love the fact that it's um, little drops. It's not just one big bucket. And, you know, it's something that once we kind of, and, and I speak from experience on this because I've done the positive neuroplasticity course. I had enrolled in the foundations of well-being and was successful at completing portions of it, but not the complete program, but you generously actually offer it annually year to year for people who very forever are in that in that boat. So full disclosure, I, I've been a student of, of what you've taught and having experienced the bringing up the negative along with the positive, it was a new uh, way of reminding myself um, that, you know, there's, there's opportunities to be grateful. There's opportunities to be um, uh, appreciative. There's opportunities to actually, uh, as you would say, soak in the good feelings because a certain part of this, which I also think, um, you know, would be important. And I'd like you to speak to is that we're actually not, we're directing our attention towards something that is very specific, but because we're turning it into a state, it's because it's actually emanating from the ways in which the things, the circuits are wired. And so that, as you said earlier, it becomes less effortful. So over time, it just sort of comes out from you. So now, for example, I don't do the things that I did before when, you know, I think of a terrible thing. I think of my grandfather, who was my rock or, you know, person who really loved me. I don't always think of him every time, but I do tend to have that experience of, well, this happened, but it's not the only thing that happened. This also happened. That's good. Not just the negative. There's also this other goodness that I've been able to receive. So can you speak about the receptivity part and how that, you know, is in our bodies a little bit and also how people kind of at times, and I know you talk about this in the class, can push away from that because they're so unfamiliar with it. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. There's, there are many things to what you're saying. So I'll just try to kind of almost like hit the headlines. Yeah, and then... I'm a chatterbox, sorry. <laughs> oh no, well, you have a background in news. So I want to make sure that I'm not rattling on. And in fact, I'm being focused here. So and I'll throw a background in media more broadly. So um, let's see, <clears throat> one, we need to grow resources inside for hard things. The worse a person's life is, the more important it is to and do what I'm talking about, which is to, to uh, internalize beneficial experiences to grow strengths inside yourself of various kinds. One of those strengths is happiness. Happiness is a phenomenal inner strength, but other strengths include things like understanding other people or being able to be more skillful in navigating a complicated world. So, this, while these methods are really great for becoming a happier person, a lot of the purpose behind them is to deal with the real crap that many, many people have to face in their daily life. One. Two, a lot of what we internalize is juicy and luscious and wonderful. Why not? You know, you're having dinner with friends and you're laughing and it feels good. Why not? I like you a lot, Francesca. I have a nice feeling of connection with you, mutual respect. Why not enjoy that? great. But it's easy to trivialize the internalization of those kinds of experiences as sort of like, well, they're superficial. Well, you know, that's what yuppies do, right? Chasing pleasure all the time. And I want to be really clear, there's nothing wrong with internalizing enjoyable, sensual, pleasurable experiences. That's great. But much of what we internalize is um, learning how to be more effective in this world. We learn how to run a meeting more effectively, or we learn what to take into account when we're working with a certain kind of person, or we learn 
how to steer ourselves away from that third cookie before we get, or third glass of wine before we get too sucked into it. We, we learn really useful things. And uh, so I want to be clear that I'm also talking about including that kind of thing as well. And then the last thing, hopefully I'm speaking to your, your question here. Um, actually, I just want to stop right there. What do you think about what I've said so far? And what else does it make you think about? Well, I think that one of the things that I know that you've asked people to do is don't let the little good things go by. Make sure that you stop, pause, and take them in. So whether it's a butterfly that you notice, whether it's a bird song, whether it's something that is anything, somebody who normally is nasty to you was waved hello, um, don't, don't discount that and don't miss it. So yep. don't be so much of a zombie in your life. Be attentive to not what happens on automatic pilot, which is the negativity bias, but be attentive to the small little things that are right today yeah. and how those can help strengthen your ability to handle adversity over time. Yeah, 100%. You know, there's even something about all this that is really soulful. You know, I'm really struck by how often people go through life enjoying one thing after another and yet feeling somehow like they're running on empty inside. They're still hungry. And part of that is baked into our biological nature uh, to you know, keep chasing the next shiny object. But a lot of it is based on our culture that focuses on consumerism and tends to make people feel that um, and tends to rush us through life so much we're not able to actually savor the present moment to give it a chance, frankly, neurologically, to weave its way into our own nervous system. And so for me, part of what um, you know, is, is really sweet is to bring a kind of kindness to yourself multiple times a day. And the worse your life is, the, the harder it is, the more important it is to bring this kind of kindness to yourself, where you just kind of slow down and come into an intimacy with whatever is beneficial that you're experiencing. You're relaxing a little as you exhale. You feel a sense of reassurance or relief when you finally get home uh, at the end of a long day. Uh, there's a moment of kind of dark humor with somebody else at work about the crazy boss you have. Whatever it might be, to slow down for those moments and to receive them into yourself and to kind of have a vulnerability to your own experience privately inside your mind. No one needs to know you're doing it. That to me is, a, is a, almost a sacred thing. And it's incredibly important, you know, as we go through life in our society. Yeah, I love that. And as I was finishing the book last night, you know, you ended with a few, um, you know, the last, the last few chapters are on relating, you know, interaction with others, which is sort of the upshot because we have to interact with other people unless we're, I don't know, living in a hole somewhere, which, you know, some people or meditators may choose to do in the hills of wherever, but, um, but most of us in the culture that we're at, we, we do have to interact with people. And as mammals, we need to interact with people. Um, but one of the things that you say a lot is uh, like, be for yourself, be on your own side, be, you know, you talk about establishing a caring committee, people yeah. around who you know are your cheerleaders, but also, um, and they can be alive or dead or, you know, mythic or whatever, but also to value yourself enough to put yourself into the equation enough to say that I'm choosing to be on my own side and that that's part of what's making me be resilient. That's mm -hmm. part of what's making me weather the storm. And I loved how in the end of the book, you talked about how that vulnerability, that tenderness, that willingness to be standing in your own truth when confronted with perhaps a conflict with a loved one, like a spouse or something like that, or even with a friend or a boss or something that you called it the bliss of blamelessness that you can, you can stand in conflict at some points, state your truth, be vulnerable. And if the other person can't meet you, you can still note that without having to, uh, forget yourself and, and, and stay away from yourself. So that's what makes me think of when you talk about this tenderness and this mm -hmm. sacred, you know, sort of quality is yeah. that we're, we're there for ourselves in that way. Yeah. 
I think you're totally right. And it's so striking. You know, the joke about therapists is how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. Mm -hmm. And so to be the person who wants to change, who wants to grow, who, who wants to treat oneself like one matters, that's absolutely fundamental. And it's striking how often that very first step has not yet been taken by a person. And, yeah. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I, I mean, are some people in like what they would call freeze states of survival, hypo arousal, in which case it's very difficult to know where to insert this kind of a teaching into someone like that or how to present it even. If you know a friend who's depressed, as I do, who isn't really getting off the couch and who really has not been, and I would love to be able to introduce helpful teachings um, how would you go about that if somebody's kind of collapsed in that way? Yeah, well, first off, you're right that often people move into this stance of freezing or learned helplessness, futility, and despair because horrible things happen to them. So they're not to blame, obviously, for having this reaction to what's happened. On the other hand, factually, uh, if a person is not uh, at least in a little bit for themselves, it's really hard for any kind of therapeutic treatment or any form of self-help to make any kind of difference. Mm -hmm. So where I find it's really great to start is for a person who's just truly dead in the water. Uh, I think as a guy who's done a lot of things in wilderness, it's like they're, they have hypothermia, which means that no matter what they do themselves, they cannot generate enough heat to stay alive. So someone with hypothermia who's on the slippery slope of freezing to death must have an external source of warmth. In the same way, I think there are people, perhaps your depressed friend, who really do need an external source. They need to be jump-started from the outside in. People who come over, who make meals, who talk with them, who turn on the TV, who sit next to them, who pet them, who clean up their house so it's not so depressing, who just get in there. All right? That's really, really important. Additionally, to the extent that a person can do a little, little, little something for themselves, I find it's really helpful to start with, with things based on our kind of fundamental animal nature. Very primal, undeniable forms of pleasure, like drinking water when you're thirsty, mm. like tasting something a little sweet, smelling something good, very primal, sensual pleasure, comfort in flannel, a very soothing touch, because as you say, we are mammals or primates to touch each other. And when a person, even someone who's very depressed or has lots of PTSD or is really shell-shocked, um, even that person in that moment is going to have an experience that's wholesome. In that moment, a kind of wholesome experience of primal sensual pleasure. Right there is an opportunity to register something good. The body calms a little. For example, when we put on a sweater when we're chilled or step into air conditioning if we're hot and sweaty, uh, a humid New York summer, let's say. Um, you know, when those moments arrive, those are undeniable opportunities to register a little something that's good. And then bit by bit by bit, a person can build up from there. Yeah, no, I think that that's so, um, so important to just sort of name that because I think that there are a lot of folks who are sort of stuck about some things and, 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 and there are, frankly, as you talk about with equanimity as one of the teachings, you know, like there are some times when you can, you can try, but it's not for me to do for you. It's for you to do for you too. Yeah. It's both, right? Like I may want to help you or introduce you, or I could be that steady presence that comes over and cleans your house or whatever. But at the same time, um, to practice, as you said, noticing the good things, but also to um, have a little bit of a desire there, a seed, a modicum, a molecule, something um, to kind of uh, open up to that. So, so that's really helpful. Uh, I thought that another thing, I just, I took a few notes. I loved how you were talking about how autonomy supports intimacy. Uh -huh. and, um, you know, <clears throat> the idea of, I think people have a lot of issues with boundaries. There's a lot of people that are either codependent or, you know, the opposite side of it, aversive, avoidant types and yeah. stuff. And this culture, as you were saying earlier, isn't exactly conducive to this more shared well-being philosophy, although we're trying to get there, right? So talk a little bit about 
how autonomy is different from avoidance or, you know, sort of, right. And then how it supports, how it supports true intimacy. And frankly, for those who don't know what true intimacy actually really is and what it looks like and feels like. Yeah. Well, there's an old proverb, fences make for good neighbors. And it's the idea that uh, how can we stay me in the middle of we? Because if a person does not have a strong sense of me, then they get flooded by we, including people who are very empathic or sensitive or have fuzzy boundaries, as research shows, can get so flooded or they're so compassionate, they just get overwhelmed. And then what happens is that the person who's like that, who got overwhelmed and flooded because there was not a strong enough sense of me, has to withdraw from we or becomes over time less and less um, uh, filled up or resourced to be able to contribute to we. So strengthening the sense of me is in the service of we. Flip it around the other way, we build up as social animals, we build up, as you well know, we build up a strong sense of self and worth and capability and we build up many uh, resources inside ourselves that help us keep going when the going is tough. We build up uh, many, many good things for me through opening to we. And one of the things I've seen routinely is that people who, uh, I work with couples a lot, for example, and classically what will happen is that they will come in and one person will seem uh, a pursuer and the other person will be the distancer, classic setup. And very often the pursuer will be complaining about the distancer as someone who's not open to relationship. Very often what I find is that the person who's the distancer is actually flooded by the intensity of relationships, including this person that, let's say it's a man who's more the quiet and reserved one, which is not uncommon in a heterosexual couple, um, especially if they land in my office. Uh, and so um, very often he, really loves her and is, does not have very strong boundaries or a strong sense of me inside. So he has to withdraw in a very kind of primitive way because it's just overwhelming. So paradoxically, what's helpful is for uh, a person to build up that sense of autonomy and healthy boundaries, healthy filters, and to take care of their own needs. So then as their own cup runneth over, they're, they have more of a capacity to be in relationship with others and more inclination in that direction. So one thing that just to finish for myself, um, I really find it quite profound to explore the intersection of compassion and equanimity. Compassion is let's say we, equanimity, emotional balance as me, no matter what kind of waves are crashing upon me. And to do that, it helps me to have a kind of image of being a deeply rooted tree, for example, so that I can be very open to the wind of others that's including really intense stuff sometimes coming at me. And it's gonna wobble my leaves and my twigs, but after the storm passes, kawoosh, I'm still here. And knowing this in my bones and having to go back to positive neuroplasticity, repeatedly internalize that experience that I can live through the storms of intimacy, including being with people who are angry with me, let's say, or are intense toward me or really want things from me, by repeatedly learning that I can hold my ground and I can stay wide open, I can stay related in a way that does not devastate me or overwhelm me. I'm still here after the wind goes by taking that in again and again helps me the next time I'm with someone who's intense or wants something or is strong or forceful coming at me, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to run away. I can actually lean in rather than defend myself and lean back. Right. No, that's beautiful. And you have more tools in the toolbox at that point, you know, so you know, you have the direct experience of having been rooted and still standing. That's repeated over time, hopefully. And you also have, um, you know, you have the, the insight that uh, 
that I think what we're often taught in movies and in romance novels in this culture is that, you know, the unity candle at weddings, that we're all just supposed to be merged. And that's mm-hmm. not really the full story. You know, there's union and then there's, you know, individuation. And I think that that's, um, that's really rich. Um, you also talked about um, healthy disenchantment. And <laughs> can you talk about that some more? Oh, sure. So any one of these are resources. That's a fancy word, but, you know, strengths, capabilities, like being able to stay me in an intensity of intimacy so that you're actually comfortable going into the deep end of the pool of intimacy. Uh, That's an inner resource, right? Another inner resource is actually healthy disenchantment. Uh, I there draw on the Buddhist notion of disenchantment where we start to realize that many of the shiny objects we chase are not actually that satisfying. They don't bring us really lasting pleasure. They're fool's gold, but not the real gold. And, Also, I think of the notion of disenchantment as waking up from the spell, the enchantment that others cast upon us. So healthy disenchantment for me is about seeing things clearly. And for example, sometimes it's realizing that you're in a relationship and that what your gut has been telling you is true, that this statue will never give you the milk or blood or water you really need. Or you realize that uh, this job, this company, or sometimes even this structure for your career is just gonna always bang up against the ceiling. It's not fair, it may not be fair, it's probably not fair, and bang. And then you realize, well, all right, what am I gonna do? I gotta get on my own side, I gotta help myself. How am I gonna move forward? Or maybe you realize in a relationship that it looked like you were gonna be able, it was gonna be able to be this big, this friend, let's say you could, you know, you could cover this much ground with that person. That's great. But over time you realize, no, the relationship kind of needs to shrink. Oh, I'm trying to do to a smaller circle. There we are. Gotcha. Smaller circle because that's the size of it that's safe. And inside that circle, it's okay. Just don't do business with that person. Don't have sex with that person. Don't talk to that person after they've been drinking, whatever. But otherwise, yeah, there's a lot you can have with that person inside that circle. But anything outside that circle, you've woken up from the spell, the enchantment about you now see really clearly. So that's the sense of healthy disenchantment. And I think it's actually especially important for people who grew up in homes in which the truth was attacked, or they've grown up in roles in which their capacity to recognize the truth was undermined or doubted by forces around them. And so it's particularly important to reclaim you know, what you know for sure for yourself, even if it involves disenchantment. It's, you're not being disloyal to the people around you to recognize what's true. Our primary loyalty and duty must be to ourselves because it's the foundation of any kind of contribution that lasts to other people. Well, going from that back to the beginning of the book, which talks about self-compassion and um, really that being sort of the foundational cornerstone, I think, for a lot of this um, ultimately sacred work that, you know, one does at some point or not um, in life, but often, you know, when the ish hits the fan, uh, you know, sort of like something's got to give. So what am I going to, what am I going to try now? And what can I try that, that might last? Um, this idea, this notion of self-compassion, I feel is really, obviously it's been proven to be extremely helpful to people. Uh, and, and, and at the same time, I find it so interesting. You may find this curious where uh, recently I said to a friend of mine, who's really a bang up, really amazing, you know, wife and mom and, head of a hospital administration department and, you know, very uh, enthusiastic and ebullient person. And she was talking about her struggles with her weight. And, you know, she's sort of cherubic. I mean, she's not obese. She's not a supermodel. She's, you know, um, she's lovely. And um, she, I said to her, what if somebody gave you a a box for Christmas, a Christmas present underneath the tree and said, there's nothing wrong with you? You know, and and she said, oh, no, I couldn't take it. You know, Mm -hmm. I couldn't open it. 
And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this process or this practice, the practices in Resilient, um, including the self-compassion practice, can help perhaps invite someone into reconsidering whether or not they can either accept that gift and open that box or uh, perhaps build their own version of a, of a gift that they uniquely would give themselves. Mm, that's great. Um, well, let's see. First off, I would say that uh, I'm a longtime psychologist, really trained in neuroscience, and I've done a lot of contemplative practices and stuff. So just factually, I, I know a lot of things. I know a lot of stuff. And what I really wanted to do in this book was to boil down and summarize so much of what I know that's really the bottom line, what's useful for people, you know, grounded in science in a legitimate kind of way, but mostly focused on, okay, what can we do today in a cut to the chase kind of way to grow more of the good inside ourselves? So that increasingly is where we can dwell in a really, really good place. And so for me, the book actually is very self-disclosing. I talk about a lot of my own struggles and it's really written from the heart. So it's super down to earth. And as absolutely, I think the foundation of all that is just what you said, this real importance in accepting ourselves and having a kindness and a encouragement, a support that we bring to ourselves, much like you brought to your friend. So then the question becomes how to install that as a psychological resource. Great, thank you, Captain Obvious. Self-acceptance, what a good idea. Great, how to get more of it. So I'm a how guy. I'm really interested in the how, because I think there's a lot of profound wisdom embedded in the how. And one of the great hows is to think about, and people can do this themselves, start by noticing what it feels like in your body, and also even in your face, when you're really determined for somebody else. You're on their side. You're an ally to them, you back them, you're for them, you would come through for them, you would stand up for them. You have that feeling in your heart for that person. It's, you're strong in that way for them. What's that feel like? What are the ideas related to it? What are the beliefs and attitudes in it? And then knowing what it feels like in your body, imagine oof, applying it to yourself. Yourself today, Maybe the child you once were, maybe the little baby you once were, maybe that inner spark, that soul essence inside you today that's tender and vulnerable and tired and carrying a big load. You know, what would it be like to bring to yourself that same experience and stance, and you know what it feels like, that you routinely bring to other people? And when people do that switch, when they first anchor the sense of what it's like to be strong on behalf of others, and then second, uh, start exploring what it would be like to be that way for themselves and then marinate in that sense. Take that sense in, stay with it, feel it, get a sense of it sinking into yourself. Then increasingly they're able to learn in a lasting way that attitude of being uh, a true friend to themselves, being for themselves. And then on the basis of that, then they go forward. Another way into it just to finish is not just this very embodied stance, but almost like a moral idea. Because it's often our ideas that take us down a wrong path. So people have the idea, oh, it would be vain or selfish to accept myself. Or people have an idea, oh, if I accept myself, I'll be lazy and I'll lose my edge and I won't keep striving. And then if, on the other hand, what a person could do is look closely at those ideas and realize they're wrong. The truth is, um, it's not vain or selfish to accept yourself and be kind to yourself. You're just treating yourself like you would treat another being. Second, it doesn't make you weak or lazy to accept yourself. Actually, when people accept themselves, they're more willing to be ambitious, as research has shown, because they're more willing to risk failure. They know they won't hate themselves if they're not successful at something. And that these ideas as well are things that people can take into themselves. Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea of practicing what it feels like on the other person that you care about and then doing a U-turn if it's unfamiliar to you. The one thing that came to mind as you were describing it is my mom's the physician, not me. But I know that, um, you know, there are certain diseases and whatnot where like the, the, the cells like turn on themselves. Oh, yeah. Know? 
they like eat themselves or they, you know, mm. and maybe that's what cancer does. I'm not even a hundred percent sure, but you know, don't quote me on that. But that, mm. and, and so I feel like some people have that tendency, even despite the, you know, yeah. opportunity to, so when they hit that wall, if they hit that wall, if they're trying to do that practice, what's the suggestion? Yeah, that's really great. So um, you're talking here in part about blocks that people have, which you brought up earlier and I did not speak to you. Sorry. You know, what do you have, what do you do when you run into uh, a part of you that doesn't want to feel good or is afraid that if you start feeling good, you'll lower your guard and right. That's when you're going to get whacked. Or maybe there's just overwhelming loss or grief or this really deep essence that I don't deserve it, you know, that isn't so much about the idea perhaps of the, um, I'll be lazy, but it's the idea of like, this can't be for me. This, this, this cake can't be just for me. Right, 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 right. So first off, it's helpful just to uh, observe that and um, uh, become more aware of that stuff inside yourself. I find that that's absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, we're being controlled by forces that we are not aware of inside our own minds. And you're exactly right. Some people have a deep sense of shame or taint or, or defect. Something's wrong with me. I'm damaged goods. This is not for me. I don't deserve it. I'm a bad girl. I'm a bad boy or something like that. That's very understandable. It's poignant and haunting. And what to do with it usually is a long process for people. And I've grappled with those kinds of issues myself in which first we try to explore and learn about this material inside ourselves. We, we feel it, we try to be with it. Um, the second thing that's really important to do is to deliberately grow resources that are a natural antidote to it, like experiences of self-worth or ideas that no, wait a second, um, I'm not a bad person, I'm actually a good and capable person, like the ideas you were trying to give to your friend there. Um, you know, that's really useful too. So we grow resources, that's the second thing. And then in the third grade step, we use linking in a variety of ways, formal and informal, large and small, to help the resources that we've grown inside ourselves, like confidence and self-worth and feeling loved. We help those things to connect with that old shame or feeling of defect or worthlessness to gradually soothe it, gradually replace it um, so that we're not haunted by it. And um, that's the process and it, it's not a quick one for most people, but if you stick with it, it makes each day a better day. And over time you become more and more willing to kind of eat or take into yourself the legitimate good food that's around you. Right. No, the nourishment. I, I, I love that. And, and I do think that it's helpful to people who are listening to just really know that it's not, um, it's not that it, it's not that you can't have big changes happen quickly. That is, so it's not, you know, either or. It's that often some of these things do in much the same way that a garden needs, you know, tending and planting and cultivating and reaping and you know, plucking, so are we doing with our own um, resilient practices. Another thing can that I, can I just, I want to say, if I could, two things yeah. that people can do really quickly, um, yep. just to deal with these old feelings of inadequacy or shame or worthlessness or not deserving. One is when you're having experiences in the flow of your day of being included or seen or liked or valued, let alone loved, slow down and take them in because it's, you know, uh, to say it a certain way, I don't know the people involved, but you have a big hole in your heart. I had a big hole in my heart and we need to fill it with lots and lots and lots of little drops. So look for those opportunities. The other thing that I think is really, really helpful for people related to this kind of thing is to recognize that in your own, that you are a fundamentally good person. You don't have to be a saint. You are a fundamentally good and decent human being. And to feel that and to recognize that about yourself is very healing for people. And those are two things that a person can do every day. 
And those are, they grow the good. I mean, that, I, I love those practices and those recommendations. And I think that in the book, what you're really saying, and we'll wrap up soon, maybe in five minutes, Five, five or 10 minutes or so, um, we have a few more minutes, but is that in this book, really, it's not about achieving a static state. It is mm -hmm. about using, well, learning, well, acquiring, and, and then um, learning how to use different tools for maintainable and growth-oriented well-being. That's how I would describe it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would, what you said earlier is really right. The book grew out of my online experiential program, The Foundations of Wellbeing. And that program was extremely popular. And in fact, we've done some research on it internally, and it showed that people who did it really got a lot out of it. They became more mindful, they became happier, they became more resilient. So it was really, really a good thing. And what stood out was the importance of experiential learning. Most of us know what we ought to do, or how we ought to think or ought to feel. And yet, here we still are. So what really changes us from the inside out, and I know for sure you know this, is to have experiences. And then on the basis of the experiences we're having, help them land, help them stick to our ribs, you know, help them become change that lasts. And that's the fundamental process that we can engage really every day of our lives. And that really is the meat of what your teachings are, I think, is not just the knowing of it, but practicing how they actually land, how they feel in the body, how you can uh, bring some awareness to, hey, here's an opportunity for, you know, recognizing something that's good. And, and oh, and what I'm supposed to do with that is uh, put it in that little hole in my heart part, you yeah. know, and, and, and pat it a little bit to make it, you know, just sort of keep it, keep it. Uh, keep it close and you know uh, and that those are things that that installation that absorption I mean to use your language you know that marination of these uh, things is actually almost more like a sensate feel over time I think it's it's not just like do this do that do this do that I mean the book has yeah and the program has 12 pillars and these different quadrants that you outline but it really seems to me more in the flow of life as life is yeah. uh, of experience as you said that it really is more about allowing and not just being overrun with whatever hits you upside the head but allowing and receiving that which is nourishing yeah. And recognizing it so you can keep on doing it and that it then becomes more, you know, if you're heavily, if you're heavily nourished, then you have greater fortitude, AKA resilience. You're totally right. You know, part of it is when you look outside, the world is unreliable. Things happen, buses are late, people die, uh, elections are cheated, things happen. And uh, it's not that we should not try to intervene in the world. Obviously, of course, we should in a variety of ways. But meanwhile, again and again and again, it's what we have inside ourselves that is our last resort. It's what we can really, really count on. And so for me, the really practical question is, okay, how do you grow more of that inside yourself? How do you grow more love, more peace, more wisdom, more happiness? And also, how do you grow more, determin more determination? more emotional intelligence, more mindfulness, more capabilities with other people, to just kind of face the fact that a lot, self-reliance boils down to what you have inside yourself. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, as someone who's a, a Buddhist deep down, uh, I'm very interested in what actually it takes neurologically, neuropsychologically, really grounded in the body, what it actually takes to meet the next moment with such a strong sense already of inner peace and fullness that there's no basis for craving. Mm -hmm. There's no need to push away what's unpleasant. There's no need to grasp what's pleasant. There's no need to cling to what's heartfelt. We can be responsive and adaptive and skillful with what we meet in the next moment, but never ever on the basis of hatred or greed or uh, hurt or delusion. That's a real question isn't it? And I well, think the answer to that over time is to grow that unshakable core. 
And that's what I see in the Buddha, and that's what I see in people who are very far along in the path of awakening. They have that unshakable core inside themselves. They feel sad sometimes, they feel physical pain, they worry on behalf of others, for example, but in the core of their being, there is an unconditional and sustained peace, contentment, and love. And, and to their point, because you mentioned Buddhism, I mean, as I understand it, you know, those like Matthew Ricard, the happiest man alive, or the Dalai Lama, people who've been, you know, meditating ad infinitum and um, really are embodied presence in that way that you speak of, uh, that, you know, technically speaking, the fMRI scans and, and all of that kind of stuff shows that um, in their relaxed and alert state, that they can be responsive without being, as you say, reactive. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, a lot of people, I think, will look at, at those folks and say, well, they can do it, but I can't do it. But I think that, yes, things accumulate with practice, right? Number one. But also number two, because you mentioned the Buddhism, can you speak a tiny bit to the idea that we're working on a relative individual body here, my body being on my side, but at the same time, there's a larger holding container, perhaps that is a shared sense that, well, what they have isn't any different from what you have deep down. They've just been putting mm. some fertilizer in their soil a little bit longer, perhaps. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of deep stuff and we just brought it up there. I'd, for me, boil it down to kind of two things. First is that, um, through repeatedly internalizing the feeling that your needs are met. And we have three key needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection related to the reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, primate human neocortex, the three stages of brain evolution, safety, satisfaction, and connection. So when we feel authentically safe enough or satisfied enough or connected enough, and then second, critically important, because it's the piece that's routinely left out, it's the missing link. When we have those experiences that are authentic, we take them into ourselves. Then increasingly, we fill ourselves up from the inside out, and we have a sense of fullness and balance when we meet the next moment, rather than a sense of deficit or disturbance, something missing, something wrong, which is the neurobiological basis for craving. Mm -hmm. We crave because we feel our needs are not met. Craving as in the second noble truth in Buddhism, drivenness, attachment in, in the unhealthy sense, uh, addiction, uh, anger, grudges, grievances, resentments, uh, chasing pleasures of various kinds, possessiveness. Those are all forms of craving. And they create a lot of suffering and a lot of harm for ourselves and for other people. Why do we crave? We crave because in our core, in the moment, we don't experience that our needs are being met. Craving is a response, it's a drive state based on an underlying deficit or disturbance in terms of needs. Well, that means therefore that if you meet the next moment increasingly with the feeling inside you of a sufficiency already of needs being met, that evaporates the basis for craving. And then, and I think increasingly, that is something we can cultivate. The Matthieu Ricards of the world and others who have really worked in that way are far along in the path of cultivation. But there's just one path of cultivation, and we can all walk it, even if there are people who are farther along. And then second, just to really finish, when our mind does become that peaceful, we start to recognize more and more readily uh, our own true nature that's been there all along. And uh, I think a lot of uh, the kind of practices that we're talking about, the ultimate benefit of them is to clear away the obscurations, they call it, between us and our true nature, so the light that was always already there can shine through us more brightly. Absolutely, lighting the path not only for ourselves and for everyone uh, around us. And I just want to say that I love that you use the word sufficiency, because I think that sometimes we think that we always have to be like, at the top of the world and the you know, and, 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 but sometimes that deep core sense of sufficiency, you call it the, you know, eudaimonia, that well being, that sufficiency that is, um, is so deeply satisfying that 
it's getting rid of the want and the lack uh, because it does fill it up in a, in a beautiful whole way. So this is the book. Actually, it's hardcover. I have a press copy, so it's resilient. Um, but it is out this month. Yeah. And Rick is in the middle of the uh, Resilient Summit this week, right? Um, which you can tune into for free online. Forever. Anything you want to say about that real quick before we go? Oh, thank you. Um, I love doing things online because like the Foundations of Wellbeing program, which is online, people can access it in any way at any time. So I love that. You can just reach so many more people. And the Resilience Summit itself, I'm doing in partnership with UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. And we have a number of world-class authorities on uh, five major topics. So we have Alyssa Eppel about the impact on our bodies, including our genes of um, you know, stress and trauma. We have Kristen Neff on self-compassion. Nadine Burke Harris, a, a pediatrician on childhood adversity uh, and, and, and including poverty, certainly. Then we have uh, Peter Levine on trauma and Sean Aker on grounding um, happiness and success in relationships. And all of that is about becoming more resilient. So it's a great summit. People can sign up for it. It'll always be free. And um, it's just been a great honor myself to be able to interview these top people and add my own material also to the different uh, pages for the summit, the web pages for the summit. So that's it. Rick, I love it. Um, always so many amazing offerings and um, your generosity of spirit is uh, appreciated here as well. So thank you so much for joining us today on Wise Girl. And um, I hope more people can be exposed to your teachings through this, uh, through this episode together. Take care, Rick. Bye-bye. Thank you. Me too.